We are in 2 Corinthians 4, although we won't get to that scripture until near the end of the sermon. This is going to be a different kind of message and a different kind of series we're starting today. You've already heard twice, both from Alan and Nathan, we're talking about difficult questions that people often have about the faith. And usually what I do, what I like to do, what I'm comfortable doing, and frankly, what I think most most uh, preaching should be is expository preaching, where you take a single scripture and you spend most of your time talking about that passage and how it applies to our lives and how we should live it out. But every once in a while, there are certain topics that need to be addressed scripturally. And so today and for the next four weeks, we're going to look at some very difficult questions people often have about faith. And there's two reasons why I felt led to do this. One was because many of us know people And there are thousands and thousands of them who struggle with these kinds of issues. People who, for whom faith just isn't an option. They just don't think they can cross that bridge as much as they might enjoy some of the fruits of what we have in our walk with Christ. They say, I can't get there because I just can't hurdle this intellectual objection. And maybe you have a a neighbor, a friend, a relative, a, a coworker, someone you know, a classmate who has brought up issues like this. And this is an opportunity here to invite them, invite them to church, help bring them, I mean, bribe them, beg, borrow, steal, get them here, let them see that we don't handle snakes, that we're not, you know, burning cats or anything like that, um, we're, that, that we're normal people, but more importantly, let them hear the gospel. Let them hear something that maybe helps them doubt their doubts a little bit, maybe subject their own doubts about faith to the same scrutiny they subject our beliefs about God. And if they won't come physically to church, get them to watch the video or listen to the podcast. It can be the beginning of a, of a real fruitful conversation. Just say, hey, listen, um, I, I'll meet you for lunch. If you'll watch this video, we'll just have a conversation, and, and I just want to hear what you have to, th- have to say about it. Um, and if you have questions after that, you know, email me, call me. I'd love to talk with you. But the second reason is because many of us, if we're honest, we struggle with some of these kinds of issues, or we have in the past, or we will in the future. And I wanted you to see in this series, I won't, I won't hit on every potential thing you struggle with or other people struggle with, but I hope you'll see that there are answers. There is a way to wrestle intellectually and come to the truth. And all the answers aren't there. Some things we won't know until we face God in heaven. But in the meantime, it is not wrong to question. It is not wrong to struggle. It's not wrong to say, well, I'm not real sure about this just yet. That's okay. That's part of the Christian life. God gave you a brain, and no one should ever tell you, hey, you've got these questions, don't worry about it. Just believe what I tell you. That's what they say in cults, and we're not a cult. We follow the living God who gave you a mind and expects you to seek the truth, because when you find the truth, that's where Jesus is. He is the way, the truth, and the life. In 2006, Richard Dawkins wrote the book, The God Delusion, which became a huge bestseller. It was part of a string of books written by people like Sam Harris and Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens, and the media dubbed all these people the new atheists because they, were, they had a different kind of attitude. Old line atheists were more, hey, just leave me alone, let me be myself. But these new atheists were much more aggressive and wanted to engage in debate, wanted to try to argue you away from faith. The God delusion uh, had a line in it, and I don't have the exact quote, but he says something like, you can't be a person of rationality and education, especially someone who takes science seriously and be a person of faith. It's, It's impossible. You have to choose. Now, 
those books were written over a decade ago, and even though they sold a lot of copies, statistically speaking, atheism hasn't really grown in our country. Um, people who don't have any faith preference at all, who, people who don't participate in church, that number has grown. But as far as the number of atheists, it's roughly the same as it was 10 years ago. But it's much louder now. It's much more a part of the, of the contemporary argument. If you get online, I, I just do an experiment. If you look at, if you read news online, any story that has to do with faith, spirituality, religion, if you'll read the online comments under, I guarantee you every time there will be at least one or two people who use that as a forum to blast faith and religion and the idea of God. And so we hear these arguments over and over again. And so people of my children's generation are growing up in a world when, for all appearances, all the intelligent people are unbelievers. And people who, are, who go to church, well, they're either older folks who just haven't gotten the memo yet, or they're younger folks who just aren't all that bright. But one way or another, the smart people are on the outside of faith. At least that's the way it appears to people my kid's age. And I'm not saying we should be worried about our public relations. I'm not saying we should, we should worry about what others think of us. That's no way to live. What I am saying is it is a problem when people think that in order to follow Christ, you have to turn off your brain, that you have to choose between the life of the mind and the life of the spirit. It's one or the other, but not both. Because that is a roadblock to faith. And that can keep people away from the God who loves us and the God we love. So is it true? That's what we're going to be talking about today. Is it possible to be an intelligent person, an educated person, a person who lets their mind go where it should go and still follow Christ, still believe in the things that are written in this book that we preach on? We don't, we don't worship the Bible, but it is the source of our authority, a source of, of our knowledge of God. So is it possible? Dr. Francis Collins, some of you may have heard of him. Back during the Clinton administration, he was the head of the National Institutes of Health. He's a geneticist, very, very eminent in his field. He actually helped map the human genome, which just unlocked all kinds of cures and, and, and medical treatments and advances. Collins was born into an unreligious home. Just growing up, church, the idea of God, spirituality, those really weren't on his radar screen. Very loving home, very healthy home, but not one where God was present. When he was a young man, a young scientist, he did something that most young scientists and most young unbelievers don't do. He said, you know, it's really inconsistent. If I'm a scientist, if I believe that things should be researched before you state your opinion, then it's kind of inconsistent of me to say that I'm an atheist when I've really never really researched whether God exists or not. I've never really done any homework. I've just always assumed. And while he figured, yeah, I'm still going to be an atheist after this, just to be consistent, I think I'll at least do some reading. And one of the books that he read along that path was a book called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. By the way, if you're an atheist and you'd like to remain an atheist, I recommend you don't read C.S. Lewis, uh, Mere Christianity. But in the book, Lewis raised a question that Collins had never considered. He said, where does the idea of morality come from? Because after all, if we're just a, higher, a more highly evolved form of primate, then why do we consider that certain things are off limits to us morally? Why do we have this idea that certain things are just wrong? How come we don't just say, hey, if you're strong enough to get your way, then do it. 
That's the law of the jungle. That's, that's natural selection at its best. And especially, why would we admire people who sacrifice themselves for others? That's, that goes totally against the idea of the preservation of your own life and the preservation of your species. And, and Collins, that was a burr under his saddle. He couldn't figure that out. And eventually, that question led to him concluding there has to be a supreme being. And from there, he eventually became a Christian. He wrote a book called The Language of God, which I highly recommend if, if you're a person who is scientifically curious and you'd like to know how uh, science and faith can coexist in the same brain. He talks about how, in his work as a geneticist, how he sees the evidence of God, God's handiwork in creation. I'd also recommend a couple of books by Tim Keller. These are in your worship guide, by the way. Uh, the Reason for God and Making Sense of God and, of course, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. These are, these are all books that help you wrestle with questions like the ones we're talking about in this series. But let's wrestle with them now ourselves, okay? I'm not delegating this to those people, even though they're more intelligent than I. Let's look at four specific questions along the lines of science and reason versus faith. First of all, an unbelieving person, if they were here, might stand and say, hey, aren't science and faith in conflict? Aren't they just two opposing forces that are constantly just, just at each other and, and opposed to one another? And I understand why people believe that. That's the common narrative in our culture. But the truth is science and faith are not in conflict, or they shouldn't be in conflict. And honestly, historically speaking, science was birthed out of a Christian environment. Modern science, what we know of it, did not come about in the Greek and Roman world because Greeks and Romans were mostly Platonists who believed that matter was evil. Why would you want to study the earth? Why would you want to study the human body? All of that's evil. We just want to get away from that. But Christians, on, on the other hand, believe that God created everything. And everything is basically good, that God created it and it speaks of his glory. And so the more you know about this world and the way it works and all the animals and life forms that exist on it and the stars and the planets, et cetera, et cetera, the more you study science, the more you will learn who God is. And that's why the early pioneers of science were all almost exclusively devout Christians, men like Kepler and Galileo and Copernicus and Pascal, Priestley, Pasteur, and Newton were all devout believers in Christ. And you might say, well, a couple of those guys had some real issues with the institutional church. I mean, Galileo was excommunicated for 500 years. And yeah, I would say that's because institutional religion was led by morons at that time. Can we say that? Can we be honest? That doesn't mean that these weren't at the same time Men who said, I'm going to study science, and in studying science, I will know God better. In a study a few years ago by Rice University, they found that 36% of professional scientists believe in the existence of God, 18% attend church weekly, and 19% pray regularly. Now, those numbers are very low. They're low compared to society at large, but they still indicate it's quite possible and, and often done for someone to be an active believer in God, a professing follower of the Lord, and be a professional scientist. So where did this idea come from that you can't be both? Christian Smith is a sociologist at Notre Dame. He wrote a book a few years ago about, about how uh, the academic world became in, increasingly secular. It started over 120 years ago when uh, people in, in uh, university settings basically promoted the idea that uh, if a university 
was to reach its academic potential, it couldn't be controlled by a, by, a, by a religious denomination. They said, you know, you can't be a person of faith and a person of science. It was sort of a political move to gain control in academia. I don't know about that. I do know that if you watch the news today, it promotes the idea of a conflict. And, and you know why? And, and I'm not... I'm not blame the media guy here. This is true of Fox News. This is true of MSNBC. It's true of your local news. They're driven by ratings. The 24-hour news cycle must be fed by ratings, and conflict drives ratings. And so it's not, it's not attractive to a news organization to run a story about someone like Francis Collins who manages to combine faith and science. It's much more attractive to them to talk about a story uh, about an atheist scientist who's railing against religion or a small town school board that just fired the local science teacher or some story of conflict. And by the way, can we all just say as Christians that we bear some responsibility for this when we jump on Facebook and get into an argument with people about scientific facts that we know nothing about, when we hear the results of some study that we don't like, and we haven't done our homework, we haven't read the research, we just don't like what that study says, and we start railing against it, and the message we're sending to everyone who's watching is, these people don't care about the facts, they just want to believe what they're comfortable believing. So can we all just agree to say together today, thank God for science. Thank God there are intelligent men and women who do research so that when I am sick, I don't go to the shaman down the street who kills a chicken and does a little dance and, and wards off the evil spirits of phlegm or whatever. I, I go to Dr. Hallbauer and he actually gives me medicine that's been researched and I'm getting the best medical treatment possible that has been researched by very intelligent people. I, I'm thankful. Hey, who else is thankful that we're sitting in air conditioning right now? Anybody? Can we say amen for air conditioning? I, I mean, we're, we're standing here in, in, a, in a room in a structurally sound building because people have studied architecture, because people have studied electronics. Um, we, we, a few weeks ago when Hurricane Harvey was bearing down on us, let's be honest, if that would have happened 100 years ago, it would have killed tens of thousands of people. But now we live in an age when people have had time to study how hurricanes work and, and how, to, how to protect yourself in times like that. Science has made our lives better in, in thousands upon thousands of ways. But science can't answer every question. There are limits to what science can do. For instance, science can't tell us where, why the world exists, why anything exists. I know the prevailing idea is that there was a big bang hundreds of millions of years ago and all matter shot out from there, but where did the stuff come from that went bang? Have you ever thought about that? Science cannot answer the question of why there is something rather than nothing. Science can't answer the question of how that matter suddenly took on life? How does inanimate matter suddenly take on the properties of organic life? Science can't tell you why we're here or how to live a life that's meaningful. There are so many questions that science can't answer. So science and faith, rather than being in conflict, science and faith are in cooperation. We need both. We need to trust God for things He can tell us only through faith, and we need to research the things that He has made clear to us through His world. Second question an unbeliever might ask is, well, but hasn't science disproved some of the facts of the Bible? Aren't there things in Scripture that are clearly, clearly disproven by 
scientific research. And so I think the first person that unbeliever would say is, hey, listen, I know and everybody else knows that the world is hundreds of millions of years old, and yet you Christians insist that it was made in six consecutive days, in six consecutive day, days a few hundred thousand years, a few thousand years ago. And I would say, yes, many, in fact, probably most Christians believe that Genesis chapter 1 is a literal record of how God created the world, and God created the world in six literal days, and it wasn't so very long ago, and anyone who thinks differently is just interpreting the scientific data incorrectly. And then I would also say that I know many other Christians, and these are Bible-believing people, people of strong faith who follow Jesus just with just as much zeal as, as the people in that first group I mentioned, who would say, no, 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 I believe that Genesis 1 is just like uh, Judges 5 and, and many other passages of Scripture that are telling a story in a poetic form. It's just that Genesis 2 is the actual creation story. Genesis 1 is a poetic telling of that story that's basically there to just show us who God is. It's basically there to say, God created this world and it is good. And so it's not to be taken literally. And they would say, God used uh, evolutionary processes over hundreds of thousands, hundreds of millions of years to bring about life, but God was in charge and he intervened in key moments. One of my good friends from a former church, he's now in his 90s, but he was a professional geologist. And he said, hey, I've spent my life looking at the rocks and looking at the layers. And yeah, I think this world is very, very old, but I think that God created it. I think that God intervened and God made human beings, just like the Bible says. It just wasn't on six consecutive days. That's not meant to be taken literally. And here's what I say say as a pastor of a church, I say that you can be in either one of those camps. And as long as we both agree that the God of Jesus Christ created this world and that it was good and that it speaks of his glory, then we can worship together. We're talking about the same God. So science has not and will not disprove scripture. The third Third thing that a person might say, an unbelieving person might say, yeah, but there's all these miracles in the Bible. I mean, can, can an enlightened, educated person really believe in miracles? Can, can you really believe, if you've gone to school, if you've, if you've actually used your brain, that, that a man was swallowed by a whale and spit out three days later? Can, can you really convince me that a man walked on water, that a baby was born of a virgin, that, uh, that someone turned a, a, a little child's lunch into enough food to feed thousands of people? Can you really believe that any of that happened? Can you really take that literally? And, and there are a lot of people who think, listen, if it can't be proven scientifically, then it didn't happen. By the way, our nation's third president was among them, Thomas Jefferson the author of the Declaration of Independence, his personal Bible was stripped of all record of miracles. He, he kept the teachings of Jesus in his Bible because he thought they were profound and meaningful and beautiful and, and necessary for life, and we should all live by them. He just didn't think that Jesus did any of the things that the Bible says he did. And there's a lot of people today who would say, if you can't prove it scientifically, then I don't believe it. And I understand that viewpoint, but when you think about it, that's kind of a circular argument because there are a lot of things that can't be proven scientifically but are still true. You're saying that science is the only real form of knowledge. And uh, there's a philosopher named Alvin Plantinga who says that's sort of like a drunk who's lost his keys in a parking lot, but he insists on only looking under a streetlight because that's where the light is good. You know, you say, have you looked over there 10 feet away? No, 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 it's dark over there. I can't, I can't look for it there. It's got to be here. It's got to be here. 
And the person who is, who is absolutely convinced that everything can be proven, they're limiting the knowledge they can have. There are so many things you can only know apart from science. I can't prove to you that my wife loves me. I can't. I can tell you stories. I can tell you how she, uh, she put me through seminary, how she lived in a, a, a single wide trailer with me and then in a rent house that was infested with mice and, and she's put up with 25 years of my nonsense and, and so many ways that she's been everything that I've wanted in a wife and yet you could say, well, I still don't believe it. You haven't proven it to me. I mean, maybe, maybe she's just waiting, hoping you're going to get rich someday. Maybe she's a cannibal and she's hoping to eat you while you're sleeping one night. I don't know. I know she loves me. I can't put it in a test tube and prove it to you, but I know. There are a lot of things that you know are true that can't be proven scientifically. In the same way, throughout human history, the vast majority of human beings, Christian and non-Christian, well over 90%, have believed in the existence of a supreme being, have believed that there was someone who created this world we're standing on, have believed that there is something after this life, there is something larger than us. And if that's true, and if he's able to do that, I think it's no problem for that kind of God to rescue a man who's been swallowed by a whale or enable someone to walk on water or put a baby in the womb of a virgin girl or raise the dead. We know it's true. Can an enlightened person believe in miracles? Absolutely. Fourth and final question. Our unbelieving friend might say, yeah, but you have to admit the Bible has some weird ideas and creates some unhealthy environments in our world. I mean, doesn't the Bible teach primitive barbaric morality that's unfit for modern educated culture? Doesn't, doesn't the Bible promote ideas like racism and sexism and homophobia and all kinds of, of oppression? Isn't, isn't the Bible responsible for so much violence in our world? And isn't so much violence done in the name of religion? And we're going to tackle that question at greater detail in a few weeks in, in our last sermon in the series. But for now, let me just say this. The short version, you still need to show up in a few weeks, but the short version is most of those kinds of misunderstandings come from a basic misunderstanding of what the Bible actually is. There's this idea, even among Christians, that the Bible is a big rule book from God. And so every part of it is basically the same. It's all just rules on how to live. But that's not what the Bible is. The Bible is, is 66 different books written by dozens of different authors in two different languages over several centuries in lots of different genres. There's stories, there's laws, there's poetry, there's wisdom, there's prophecy, there's apocalyptic literature, and you can't read it all the same way. Let me just give you an example of a misunderstanding that comes from misunderstanding what the Bible is. Exodus 21-23, you've probably heard this before. It says, if there is serious injury... You are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. And so people will read that and say, well, see, the Bible promotes violence. The Bible promotes vengeance. You people are no better than the Taliban. If you just follow your scripture uh, consistently, you're going to be killing people left and right. But you're misunderstanding a couple of things. First of all, 
the context in which that was given. That, that is a passage from the Mosaic law. That was part of the law that God gave to Moses to give to the Israelites at Mount Sinai when they were just a group of recently freed slaves who were about to establish a nation. And these were primitive, barbaric, violent times. I mean, in these times, there was no police force. There was no justice system. So if you and I got into a fight and you broke my nose, I'd get a couple of my no-neck friends to come and break your legs. And you'd get a couple of your friends to come and burn down my house. And then I'd get a couple of my friends to go and burn down your whole village and back and forth it would go until we're, we're all dead. And God was creating a new law to say, listen, let's create something called retributive justice. Let's make sure that, that punishments fit the crime. So in the future, if somebody gets a black eye, he doesn't get to kill the guy who blackened his eye. You bring him before the village elders and you come up with a punishment that fits the crime. That's all the, the, the law of eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth is about. And by the way, if you go ahead and read on in Scripture, you get to the New Testament, and you find out that Jesus, Paul, Peter, the whole New Testament says we don't live under the, the Old Testament law anymore. The Mosaic law doesn't apply to us. It was for a specific time, and it's not for today. And, and everybody here says hallelujah because many of you are going to go out after church, and you're going to eat catfish, and you're going to eat shrimp, and you're going to eat bacon. Hallelujah for bacon. Can we get an amen for bacon, right? I mean... Things like this that we don't live under because they were for a specific time. Jesus, in fact, in Matthew 5.39, specifically dealt with a, a, the eye, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth when he said, hey, that's the way you used to live, but here's the new law I'm giving you. From now on, you don't, you don't get back at the person who hurt you. You turn the other cheek, you love them, you pray for them, you bless them. And I still say, almost all misunderstandings about Scripture would be eliminated if people would actually, I don't know, read Scripture. Read it as it truly is. Read it responsibly as it was intended to be read. So, with that in mind, let's finally read our Scripture. 2 Corinthians 4, 4-6. through 6. Friends, you have just heard the longest sermon introduction in human history. I promise we don't have much further to go, but I do want us to read this passage. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Paul writes, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made this light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. And I think most of us here in this room are believers in Jesus, and so I'm going to talk to you as believers for just a minute, and then I'm going to address unbelievers in the room after that. So is, what does this say to us as believers in Christ? It says we have no room for arrogance. We have no room for self-righteousness. We have no room to feel superior because we found the truth. Truth is, we didn't find the truth. The truth found us. Not one of us, not one of us has earned this. And we have no right to look down on anyone who struggles intellectually or who says, I can't believe the way you believe. We have no right to return sarcasm for sarcasm or indignation for indignation. 
The truth is none of us would be followers of Jesus if God had not turned on a light in our hearts somehow, some way, through the witness of someone else, through the power of his Holy Spirit. Eventually, we were able to open our eyes and see scriptural truth that otherwise would seem like nonsense to us, that otherwise would seem like gobbledygook. Suddenly, we open God's word and it makes sense. Suddenly, we open God's word and we hear God's word preached and we say, that's talking to me. And that's the Holy Spirit. That's not you. So be patient with your unbelieving friends. Be patient with them. Be patient even if they're not patient with you. Understand that our job, our goal is not to be at war with them. We're not trying to win an argument. The truth is I've never known anybody who has argued into salvation. I've certainly never known anybody who was insulted into faith in Christ. You need to understand that if you get to know people who have these intellectual objections to faith, when you get down to the root of it, they've all got reasons why it's hard for them to make that leap. For a lot of them, they grew up like Francis Collins in an irreligious home, and they've never really been around people who believed devoutly in anything other than themselves. And it seems weird to them. For some, they were, they were raised in a religious home, but it was an unhealthy religious home. Maybe they watched their parents go to church and act holy on Sundays and the rest of the week act very differently. Maybe they were even abusive. Maybe they were hypocritical. Or maybe they grew up in a church that was unhealthy, toxic. There are churches, let's just be honest, where Christ is not even close to being Lord. And those churches are unhealthy environments where awful things are done. If you grow up in one of those kinds of churches, it's very difficult to continue to believe. Some of these people experienced trauma at some point in their lives that they said, I just can't reconcile the fact that there's a God who loves me but allows this to happen. We're going to talk more about that next week. And, and let's be honest, and this is sad to say, but for a lot of unbelievers, probably the majority of unbelievers today, the only daily contact they have with Christian faith is what they see on the news or what they read on Facebook or Twitter or Reddit. Is it any wonder they think that we're a bunch of netwits? Is it any wonder they think that what we believe in is a lot of fairy tales? What they need to see is someone, just one person, who lives with integrity, who walks in humility, who returns sarcasm with grace, who returns hatred with dignity. Someone who loves them. Someone who treats them with consideration, someone who treats them the way Jesus treated us. Just imagine that person, that classmate, that friend, that neighbor, that coworker, that relative, that's God's child. When you love them, you're loving him. When you love them, you're showing them there's something more to life than what they have. If they're going to be won, they won't be won by our arguments, and they certainly won't be won by our self-righteousness. If they're going to be won, they'll be won by our love. So who is it that God's calling you to love this week? Now, to those of you who aren't believers, when I read that scripture a moment ago and it said that the God of this age is blind to the minds of unbelievers, I'm sure you found that offensive. Hey, does the Bible really teach that I'm blind, that I can't see? Yes, it actually does. But instead of getting defensive about that, let me just challenge you to do what Francis Collins did all those years ago and just check it out for yourself. 
Don't rely on the information given you by others. Do the research. And when I say do the research, I don't mean you have to believe what I believe about Genesis. I don't mean you have to uh, accept every story that I believe is literally true in Scripture. I don't mean that you have to go to my church. I certainly don't mean you have to vote the way I vote. But the question I ask is, who was Jesus really? What did he do? How did he live? Why did he die? And what happened after that? And what does that have to do with me? See, those are the most important questions I believe you can ever ask. And I think you owe it to yourself to know the truth about that. Jeremiah 29 has this great promise in it that I love. God says, if you seek me, you will find me when you seek me with all your heart. If you seek me, you will find me. If you seek me with all your heart. I believe that anyone who truly wants to know whether God is real, he'll find him. He or she will find that God and, and God will change their life. And I know, I know, I can only imagine it would be so much easier not to do that. It's much more comfortable to continue believing what you've always believed. And, and I promise, I, I can understand this. If you think there's a possibility there's a God out there who knows everything you've ever done or said or thought, and someday you'll have to stand in front of him, I can understand why you wouldn't want to know that. And it's more comfortable not knowing that, not believing that. But let me put it to you this way. Let me just pitch it to you this way. What if, what if the story of the Bible is not that there's a bunch of rules and whoever's best at keeping those rules gets to go to heaven and everybody else burns? What if the story is actually that God looked upon humanity in all of its brokenness and all of its violence and all of its, all of its hurt and said, I can fix that. I can rescue you. And in order to rescue them, he had to give up his life. He had to become human to lay down his life in our place because a God can't die, but a man can. And so he became a man and he rescued us through his death so that through his death, we could have life and not just life and not just life eternal, but life that is unlike anything we've ever imagined where we experience love and joy and fulfillment, and, and, and life the way it was meant to be lived, and become all that we've ever hoped to be and more. What if, what if there's a God, the God who created the universe, and who will someday rule the universe, who actually handcrafted you in your mother's womb, and knew everything about you, and, and said, I have these incredible dreams for you, and is just hoping against hope that someday you will get to know him. And that when you get to know him, You'll experience life as it was meant to be lived. And if there's even a chance that that's true, isn't it worth your time to at least check it out? And the people in this room, I could stand any one of them up and they'd say, not only is there a chance it's true, I know it's true and I've experienced it and it's the greatest thing that's ever happened to me. Not only is it worth your time, it's worth your life. 